Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Richard Schwartz, where I ask him how he created the internal family systems model and how does IFS work, which internal family systems is a really incredible modality of therapy that I use and still use to help me and my therapist does it. But just a quick little content warning, this conversation does contain details about addiction, eating disorders, and mental health disorders. And also, your relationship with your mental health is yours and yours alone. And anything that you hear on this on this episode is not a direct endorsement. It's not, you need to do this. We all have our own relationship with mental health. And this is Dr. Richard Schwartz's story of how he created internal family systems. It makes it a little bit of the story of how I used it to help me heal. Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I have such an exciting guest. I'm so excited. So first of all, if you've read my book, then you know that I talk about internal family systems and IFS has been a really uh, important tool for me in my personal journey to healing. So um, we have none other than Dr. (laughs) Richard Swartz. Uh, Welcome. Thank you. Please call me Dick. Ah, uh, I love love being on such a first name basis. Well, uh, I'm... I loved your book. I can't tell you. You read it? Oh, of course. Yes. And I think it's a fabulous book. I think it's going to help many, many people. Thank you. And I agree with virtually all the critiques you have of, you know, 12 step and the the sobriety model. And I just loved how disclosive you were about all your parts. Because as you say, people expect the positive part all the time. So I was really glad. Uh, that you could be that disclosive. Thank you. Um, yeah, it was really nerve wracking. Um, but I was really excited to kind of have the opportunity to to do that. I, um, full disclosure, did not know you read the book, didn't mean for you to have read it. And that's so amazing that you did. I'm very much fan personing out right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I have, I have uh, had several family uh, friends and like people in my life that like used IFS and and had therapists that did IFS. I think it's really such an incredible modality of healing. So can you just tell us like you're minding your own business one day and then you were like, (laughs) ah, like, I think I have part, like, how did it happen? No, it didn't happen that way. So I, I uh, have a PhD in marital and family therapy. I love PhDs. I love doctors. <laughs> I love titles. So, so PhD in, in, in marital and uh, in what and what? In family therapy. So I was a zealot family therapist who thought all this mucking around with the intrapsychic stuff was a waste of time because we could change all that by just reorganizing family relationships until I made the mistake of doing an outcome study and tested that theory and found that it didn't work. I was working with a population of bulimic kids at the time. And I could reorganize their family just the way the book said to do it. And they kept binging and purging. So out of frustration, I began asking why. And they started talking about these different parts. They talk about this critic that would attack them if something happened in their life that they didn't like. And then that would trigger this part that could make them like your boy, you know, just totally feel worthless and empty and alone. And that was so distressing that to the rescue would come the binge and would take them out of their bodies and and make them feel better. But the, the binge would bring the critic back. 
And as they talked about this, it sounded similar to what I was studying in families, these sequences of interaction. So when was this? This was about 1982. So in the early 80s, you're in America and you're working in primarily like family like family therapy. Yes. And what's the difference between like family therapy and like something like internal family systems? Like well, what's the definition of family therapy? Because I think I don't, I don't know what it is. Oh, okay. So family therapy takes the position that you can't take a, mainly back then it was kids. I was working for an institute for juvenile research. You can't take a kid out of their family and tell them to stop acting out. You have to understand all the dynamics that are driving the kid to do what he's doing and change those. So that was the big revolution that family therapy brought to psychotherapy because so much more psychoanalytic or psychodynamic was just trying to work with an individual in isolation. So, <clears throat> so that's what family therapy contributed. And I sort of said, as I got to know these parts, maybe it's the same. Maybe these parts that are so extreme can't help doing that because of the dynamics of the inner system and because of what happened to them in their lives. Maybe they're like kids in a family in a, in a sense. And so as I started getting curious about that and asking clients more questions, they began to t teach me that that was true, as you found out, that each of these parts, even the ones that seem destructive, are just doing their best, you know. And you do such a good job of describing that in the book, just trying to keep you safe, basically. Yeah, and like they, a lot of times, so, okay, so I have so many questions. So because you've been practicing psychotherapy, so the um, so the umbrella term is like psychotherapy. Right. And then all these other like therapies and modalities of healing kind of exist, like all as like different ways or approaches of like doing psychotherapy. Exactly. And so you go to school for like a long time, honey. You're a literal PhD. So yeah. you have been studying this since like what, like the 70s, like early mm -hmm. 80s? So how has how have you noticed like the public's perception of therapy or willingness to 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 do therapy to because like one thing I've been trying to do is like I've often said that word like oh like sorry I was crazy or like just throwing around the word crazy a lot yeah. and I'm really I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I'm like it's not crazy right. and the more that I label things as crazy the more it gives other people the right to like label things as crazy and it's not crazy and I think that and the way that people talk about like oh like I've had issues with mental health we've all had issues with mental health like yes. every the most balanced person has had issues in relationship to their own mental health. We all have a relationship to our own mental health. So I've really been like trying to rethink about how I think about the word crazy. Yeah. So how is, how do you think the public's perception of therapy in, in regards to get healing has changed? Is it changing? I think it's changed to some degree. Um, I, and that's one of my big goals because much of, uh, psychiatry and psychology has been very pathologizing of what I call parts and giving you a diagnosis that's totalizing. It just says you are a borderline or you are schizophrenic or you are. And uh, what I'm trying to say is each of those categories describes the protective parts of people that have taken over to try and keep them safe. And that's all it is. And it's like you're saying, nothing to be ashamed of. Now what's borderline? Um, uh, the borderline profile is uh, someone who often has an extensive sex abuse history, and as a result, 
has parts that can be very uh, sort of seductive and try to pull you in to take care of their young parts for them. And then they have what I might call a bouncer part. So as soon as you get close, they'll push you away in a very severe way. Oh my God, I think I have both those parts. (laughs) Well, we all do to some degree. And then because they go through those patterns and they get so desolate and and, uh, frustrated and hopeless, there are other parts like suicide parts and other parts that are trying to help them by saying there's an escape here if you need it. But that's all it is. And so those clients have a terrible reputation in the psychology world because therapists don't like being attacked. They don't like all the crazy, the crazy, all the, the extreme ways they try to protect themselves. And I'm just trying to say all those parts are good. None of them are pathology. If you get to know them and listen to them, they'll teach you about what they're protecting, which are these very vulnerable parts that you also describe nicely. So, and, and we can heal all that. So, um, cause I think when I first started reading about parts and hearing about parts from, uh, this like family friend, and then like later on a therapist that, that specialized in it. Cause really I, I had family friends that got like a lot of healing from parts. Then I like started looking for a therapist that did it. And then I found one that did it in LA and I started seeing them and they really helped me so much. And, um, I think when I first started reading about parts, I was like, ooh, this feels like multiple personality disorder. Like, right. ooh, like, what does this mean? Or like, ooh, am I crazy if I notice that there's like these different parts in my personality? Mm-hmm. And then I was like realizing, I think from your your book, because I think I, you, don't you have a book about it? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I read it. So it's like, yeah, it's like, it's just like everyone has parts. They're just like in different, like polarizing, like it's like some people's are more like, you know, hard mm-hmm. to identify because they're just more kind of like even and then other people's are more like extreme. Exactly. So then I was like, oh, it's totally not, bo- it's not like multiple personalities. It's like everyone has this and mm-hmm. and the whole extreme personality or personality disorder is like a whole other thing. That's like, if you have like multiple personality, like that, what's that thing? That multiple personality disorder? Now they call it uh, DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder. Yes, 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 DID. So that's like a very, that's like kind of rare and like doesn't happen very often. Well, more often than you might think. And my, so that's what I've been up against as I try to turn the, the field onto this is because DID has been seen as so scary and so not many people and, and pathologize, uh, the idea of the normal mind being multiple is very scary to people. And it turns out that people with that diagnosis who have what are called alters, you know, where they totally take over and they're a full range personality, are no different from anybody else, except that because of the horrific abuse they suffered, their system blew apart more. So that there are these what they call amnesic barriers between each one. When one takes over, the others take off. And but aside from that, we're, we're all the same. We all what I'm calling parts is no different from these full range personalities. So people that have DID are like totally capable of like healing and living like full normal lives totally. as long as they like understand their parts in their system. So do all people that suffer from DID have like extreme abuse in their childhoods? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So like you've never met like a DID patient who had like a completely normal upbringing. Not a bit, never. Ah. Interest. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So my original question before I interrupted you 17,000 times <laughs> was, um, is the public perception of therapy changing? Yeah. So I do think, and thanks to people like you and other people, uh, 
famous celebrities who talk about the value of therapy. I think that's right. I think, I think it is. Um, you know, we have started training programs all over the world, and in China, there aren't really therapists because there's so much you lose face if you if you admit you have problems, and so there's some degree of that still here, but not nearly as much. And so that's another reason I'm grateful to you. Stop. <laughs> so in the early 80s, you kind of realized like, okay, this kind of modality that I've really been into, which is like family accounts or like family therapy, maybe isn't like the one key that like is going to unlock all of people's doors yeah. to healing. Yeah, yeah. So you're like, I think I need to like kind of sort out a different modality. Yeah. And I was lucky to have some clients at the time who were very articulate about their parts. And so I would just ask more and more questions about how they related to each other. And it was clear they had relationships with each other that were similar to the family's relationship, the external family's relationship. And as a family therapist, I wanted them, once I got hip to the fact that the parts weren't what they seemed, they weren't bad, and they just needed to be listened to, I started to try to set up dialogues between the client and these parts. So I might have one of my teenage bulimic kids talking to their critic and trying to get them to listen to the answer. And suddenly they're furious with the critic. And so things are breaking down. And what I found at that time was it reminded me of family sessions where maybe I'm having a teenage girl talk to her critical mother. And all of a sudden she's angry at the mother and you look around the room and you see the father is cueing her that he disagrees with the mother too. And as a family therapist, we were taught to get him to just step back out of her range of vision so that she wasn't influenced by him to dislike the mother and things would settle down and she'd do better. So as I'm doing that with these inner families, with my client talking to her critic, and she's furious with the critic, I'd say, could you find the part who's so angry at the critic and get that one to step back in there? Basically doing the same thing I was doing in external families. And clients would say, okay, that did. Now how do you feel toward the critic? It would be entirely different. Now they were curious about it, even sometimes compassion for it, calm relative to it, confident, and that they would have a good dialogue with it. The critic would respond well to that. And they would learn its secret history about how it got forced into this world. Oh my God, wait, wait, wait. We had to take a really quick break. I have a thought. I have to write this down. Stand by. Self? Yes. So just stand by. Uh, we're going to do a couple ads right now. You can just do a brief little commercial break. I may have a British accent in it. I may not. I don't know. <laughs> we're going to see. So we're just going to be right back with more uh, Dr. Richard Swartz, who we call Dick, who we love right after the break. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. So what we were just talking about was your kind of your discovery of parts therapy and kind of mirroring some of the things that you would do in family therapy and in the external family and then bringing that into the way that our internal and internal dynamics work. Now, then we went into, you started saying uh, you would feel confident relative to the, to the situation or to the mm -hmm. part. Yeah. Calm, confident, compassion. And honey, then I started to hear the seven C's, honey. It's the tenets of eight self. C's, yeah, eight yeah. C's. Yeah. The eight C's. What are the eight C's? Because I always fuck them up, as you can tell. <laughs> I, I often do too. Yeah. So compassion, calm. Right. Curious. Yes, we like love curious, curious around here. Yes, yes. that's right. Um, 
clarity, mm. creativity, courage, connectedness, and uh, <laughs> that may have been eight. It might have been eight, but yeah. that. So basically, if those are the feelings, if those are the the things that you're experiencing around qualities. a situation, yeah. if those are the qualities yeah. that you're experiencing around a situation, that means that you are making like self-led decisions. That's right. So, so self-led means blank. Yeah. So what I was finding as I was getting other parts to separate was this other person would emerge who would have those eight C qualities and would know how to relate to the, their parts in a healing way. And as I would do that same process of getting other parts to separate and other clients, it's like the same person showed up. Same qualities, would have the same tone of voice even, and would know how to heal. And after doing that maybe six or seven times, I started to think, if this isn't everybody, that changes everything. You know, that if there is this core essence in us that only needs to be opened up and knows how to heal, and can't be damaged, which it turns out it can't be damaged, uh, then that totally changes up. Our centered self cannot be damaged. Cannot be damaged. What does that mean? It just means I've worked with people who had horrific childhoods, who've had horrific combat experiences, and you get parts to open space, and it's the same self with all these healing qualities that emerges spontaneously and relatively rapidly and knows how to heal both internally, but also knows how to heal in external relationships too. Wow. I mean, that reminds me of like faith and like spirituality. Like that's like, it reminds me of like Jesus, Buddha, like major teachers are like, I feel like they had all those tenets. It's like, we're all trying to get there, but everyone just says it in different ways. That's exactly right. So in your experience, wait, wait, focus, Jonathan. I'm so sorry. So, (laughs) so then you start to kind of like, practice bringing some of those external family uh, modes of calming, diffusing situations into internal. And now we're like, where? Like kind of in the 90s or something? No, no. This is maybe... Oh my God, there's coffee. Come on in. Yes. Because it's your chai too. I'm not being selfish. It's 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 for both of us. Totally. Thank you. Yes. Yum, yum, yum. Cheers. (laughs) Yay. Cheers for us. So great to meet you. Yeah, you too. My kids are... I finally found a way to impress my kids. Oh my god! They're so into you. Yeah. Ah! yeah. Well, I, I hope I was uh, a cool factor for you know for me being Very such cool. a fan of yours. Totally. Um, okay, so so that now we're kind of in like the mid eighties, yeah, eighties, mid mid eighties. Yeah, um, this all came very quickly. Um, it took a while to trust it to actually use this with enough people that I started to think maybe this is universal. Uh, so that took a couple of years, but once that, once I got that, I had this vision of possibility that's just now starting to manifest. Um, and just this is the big radical discovery, for lack of a better word, that this isn't everybody. And you're right, most spiritual traditions, especially the contemplative sides of those traditions, know about this. What I call self, they call Buddha nature, or they call Atman or the soul or et cetera, et cetera. Almost no other psychotherapies know about this. And in a lot of spiritual traditions, it's like you've got to meditate 20 years to get to it. But it turns out all you need to do is get these parts to open space for it. So as you start to 
because I think one other thing, well, at least for me in my life is like, I'm always looking for like that one like light switch or like, like aha moment as Oprah would say, where it's like, oh, everything's fixed and cute now. And like, I could just put that all in like a nice little box and never have to think about it again. Because like now I have like the modality of healing that just is like one size fits all kind of thing. And I think the older I get, the more I realize that it's like, it's always going to be a collection. It's always going to be like a tool of like a lot of resources. And you got to like, you know, kind of figure it out like all the time. Totally. Um, so I think that's kind of where where people get threatened. And I know I've gotten threatened because it's like, no, no, no. Like I have my way. Like I have the thing that works. And it's like, just be ready because there's going to be other things. There's going to be other, you know, modalities. Yeah. And there's going to be, because I'm, I'm sure there are things that in, in your family therapy time that you still take with you and totally. hold with you. And it was, much. it was useful. It just wasn't like the one thing. Like that's there's, right. there's many things that it can be. That's right. So as you, so when did like, when did you like coin IFS? The name? Yeah. Oh, that's a really good question. I would say 85 or so. God, predates me. Ew. <laughs> You've been so smart for so long. So then, so, so you, so you start calling it IFS. Mm-hmm. Have you, has the biggest pushback been like, Oh, like this sounds like everyone has schizophrenia. And yeah. like, that's, that was one. Um, particularly, I was in a department of psychiatry in Chicago and uh, it was very, uh, analytic in, in a particular form of analytic called self-psychology where there was this huge fear of fragmenting people. And so I would be talking in front of a grand rounds, you know, with all the white lab coats and so on. And they would get up and start, you're fragmenting people. This is so dangerous what you're doing and so on. And my answer was the people I'm working with are fragmented. Their, their parts are way out there and we're rounding them up and bringing them back home. We're not, you know, making them more extreme. So, yeah, it's been an uphill battle in that way. Uh, okay, no, I need to still remain focused because my brain's going like so many different places. So, you, so who were the people that you work with, were working with, do work with? Like, how did you, would people kind of seek you out because no other thing was working? Sometimes, yeah. Um, you know, when I wrote my first article about all this, I got letters all over the country saying, thank you for saying we're not crazy. Thank you for saying that multiple personality isn't pathologized. Thank you. And so, yeah, I would get a lot of people. And so I wound up specializing in the treatment of what's called complex trauma, people who were chronically abused for many years and have no ability to trust anybody and uh, have very extreme parts as a result. Uh, For about 20 years, that was my population. And they're my best teachers. They're the ones who really forced me to figure out ways to handle most anything in this inner world. So what if there was a person <laughs> who um, you were like, oh, like I see my therapist and I do like I see my therapist, you know, once a week. And then let's say that person was like, oh, like I don't do therapy. I've never done it. Like it's fine. But like I just don't really like I just don't really do that. Or like they ha- like what is the stigma around therapy? And what do you say to someone if they do have that stigma when you talk about your therapy? Or is it just maybe not for them? Okay, I'm going to stop answering my own question. Yeah, so um, a lot of the stigma, as, as I was saying, comes from the sense of if you have any of these symptoms that that you're sick. and Or if you have problems, it, it comes from our rugged individualist culture where you should, through willpower, be able to change most anything about yourself. And so if you can't, you're a big failure and you're a loser and you're maybe even sick. Or if you have an addiction, like you wrote about, it's a disease. And so you have to hide it because, I mean, 
the disease actually lifts some of the stigma, that idea, but it's still a stretch to let people know. And I think it's also quite like, it's like what you were, it's very like, um, the thing for me that was troublesome, it's like, if you are, if you do have an addiction, then you're always an addict. Like once an yeah. addict, always an addict. Yeah. And that just feels like such a life sentence that yeah. feels very like sad. Exactly. And it's just not true. And so as you wrote about in your book, people who can't be sober, whatever the thing is, uh, feel like failures. And that shame then just fuels the part that's trying to make you feel better that way. And it becomes a vicious circle that way. So so let's talk about parts more. Yeah. So as you are kind of learning about this from the clients that you're working with, what are the categories of parts that emerge for yeah. you? Okay. Like what does someone's system look like? Yeah. So I have a fairly simple map of this territory. And so we all have been hurt and rejected and shamed and terrified in different ways. And when we have those kinds of traumatic experiences, the parts of us that get hurt the most by those experiences tend to be these vulnerable inner children who are the most sensitive. So they take on what I call the burden of terror or the burden of shame or the burden of, of um, pain, emotional pain, and shift. Before they were hurt like that, we love being with them because they provide all this life, liveliness and creativity and awe at the world and openness and desire to connect. But after they get hurt, we don't know that that's the same part. We think, okay, we've got these memories, sensations, and beliefs from those experiences. We don't want to feel that, so we tend to lock those up inside, and I call those the exiles now. And so they are these inner childlike parts who now carry the burden of pain or terror or shame or other things like that that we spend the rest of our lives trying to avoid feeling. So your exiles are the part of you that like when the teacher or your parent or the kid in school, like whatever, like traumatic, or it could be way worse than that. Like it could be like violent traumatic experience, sexual abuse. Like exactly. it can be yeah. big things. So it's like the part of you that went into that situation, like the sparkly, like little, mm -hmm. like, Oh, I haven't seen this terror yet. That's right. The part of you that experiences that gets so traumatized by whatever the hurt, rejection, trauma was yeah. that it gets locked into a little box because like, we never want to have to feel that part's pain again exactly. because the thing was so major. Right. So that's what an exile is. That's what an exile is, and it's frozen in time. It's, it lives as if the scene is still happening. And it's, so it's in that constant fear or, or shame. Okay, we have to take a really quick break. Break police. Uh, really quick. We got pulled over by Ray. She's, you know, pretty, she's right. And she's okay. pulling us over. So uh, we'll be right back with more. Uh, I, I feel too respectful to call you Dick Ray. We'll be right back with more Dr. Schwartz after this. <laughs> Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. So that's what an exile is. Yes. Then what's the next kind of part that you discover? Yeah, so when you have a lot of exiles, which given what you wrote about your history, you, you did from coming out of your childhood, then life becomes a lot more dangerous and your system becomes a lot more delicate. And so you need a lot of what we call protector parts who take on roles. It isn't to the nature of the part, but they're like, um, in family therapy, we used to call them parentified children children who have to become like a parent 
So you have a bunch of these protector parts who try to manage the external world, like manage your relationships, manage your appearance. Parentified children, they're trying to control everything so that your exiles don't get triggered. Because if your exiles get triggered, it's a big emergency. It's like flames of emotion are going to consume you and pull you back in those scenes and, and uh, you know, make you stay in bed for a week and, or make you suicidal or whatever. Or in a less polarized environment, just make you have like a work flare up, make you have a fight with a friend, but exactly. make you ha- or make you maybe you might make a bad work decision. That's right. So all of those would be other kinds of protectors reacting to the exile coming up. So, so we have these what we call manager protectors who are trying to manage your appearance, which is a big topic of yours, and then manage uh, so you never get rejected, manage your performance so you get lots of accolades, manage your relationships so nobody gets too close to hurt you again or people you depend on don't get too distant from you. It's a lot. They're working all the time. My parts are seriously like, they are literally, they are, they've been working so much overtime. They're so tired. They're doing all that stuff. That's right. They're so tired. So you got the exiles and then you got protectors. And you got, and that's managers. And then the other kind of. Okay, wait, wait, no, 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 I think I need more manager definition. So the exiles, we know who they are. Yeah. Then the managers are. They're the parts that are trying to preempt anything that would trigger the exiles. So they're like I said, into controlling everybody. They're into pleasing people, all that, caretaking, Mm -hmm. all that. Yep, got a couple of those. So what are some other examples of other people's, like, managers? Um, You know, I have a very rational manager that can keep my my, in my head and not let me feel very much or numb my body so I don't feel. I played college football for four years, so I'm out. I took a long time to get back in my body. So, um, So there are managers that dissociate you, that try to keep you a little bit removed from the world. Uh, there's a whole variety of common. And again, these are just the extreme roles these parts were forced into. They're not the nature of who they are. Okay, so what about this? What if you said to someone like, oh, you know, I was a professional football player for four years, so it took me a long time to get back in my body. And then that, because I could almost hear my grandma, like she's no longer with us, mm-hmm. but I could almost hear her saying like, oh, get off it. Like, what does that even mean? Like, Hit your arm. You're you're in there. Like right. it's you know, pull right. up your damn bootstraps. Get it together. Right. Like, what does that even mean in your body? Like, I can hear my one, like let's say, person who you're like would be talking to about therapy who doesn't like believe in therapy or doesn't yeah, believe yeah. they need therapy. And it's like, oh, get off it. Like you're, like what is that part? Yeah. Like what is the part that just thinks that therapy is not necessary? Is for people that are too emotional or think too much? Yeah. So that you know, there are parts and. Our current president has, a, has that in spades where they have a kind of contempt for vulnerability and a contempt for weakness or losers. You know, that they're, they're these, that's one class of protector. It hates the parts of you that felt hurt by what happened to you and that it hates people who look like those, those parts. <clears throat> and like I said, our current president has that in a big way. So that's just a type of protect. So are protectors and ma- protector, yeah. are, protect- are protectors and managers the same? Yeah. So manager is the larger rubric, and then under that are managers, and then if, despite these managers' defenses, it's what's called in traditional therapy, the world breaks through and triggers an exile. Like I said, it's a big emergency. Something's got to happen immediately to deal with all this feeling that's overwhelming you. So we all have other parts. Who- jump into action, are impulsive, reactive, 
damn the torpedoes. I don't care about the collateral damage to your body, to your relationships. I've got to do this thing right now or you're going to die, they think. You know, you're going to be so overwhelmed by those exiles. And so they spring into action, often in some extreme way, not always. I mean, I have, and these we call firefighters because they're fighting the fire of the exiles' emotions. And, uh, and so they'll do something, and then that thing will bring more shame, both from your manager critic who's attacking you for having done this thing that upsets everybody, and that goes to the heart of the exile that carries a lot of shame. And then that just means this firefighter has to work that much harder to deal with the shame. So you get into that vicious cycle where the firefighter is just trying to take care of you somehow. In your case, it sounds like it was sex and food sometimes. Yeah. And But the act of doing that would trigger this critic who's attacking you for having done it and having no willpower and so on. And will also bring criticism and from people around you, but also from therapists, unfortunately. Yeah, I definitely experienced that. Because yeah. I think I also had a relationship with a therapist where I like was scared of them like judging me. And when I would be honest, they would like judge me really hard. So then I just would like still be like selectively on it, like yeah. selectively honest yeah. about what it was really going on so yeah. that I could just like bamboozle them with like stories of the salon or whatever. And right. then like never really have to get. But also interestingly i did that more when it was like not my money yeah like once i started paying for my own therapy you're i was right. like oh fuck this i gotta like have someone who i can really be honest with because yeah. like no one heals if you're not being honest that's right and that's why your book is so valuable because as a celebrity now for you to be so honest about what you've gone through and and your history and the parts of you that, that try to protect you just makes everybody feel like okay so what so i've got parts too that do that yeah yeah, I mean, I think everyone does. And I think I'm really trying to, like, find more compassion for when, like, people, you know, act a fool. Because um, mm-hmm. sometimes my parts get too delicate or just too stressed out. And then I kind of become brand new and I become a little rigid mm-hmm. um, around what my needs are. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, everyone's working really hard. So how do you get someone when they're in the midst of... In the mix, in the midst of being flummoxed from the the climate of their parts, because let's just say someone else we know is having a hard time with their parts <laughs> at the moment. Right. Um, how do we get more of that centered self to emerge? Yeah. So, one of and the- how do we know the difference between a protector part and our centered self being like, no, I'm done getting fucked around. Yeah, really good question. So, um, so one of the things I like. <laughs> I like best about this work is that people can do it on their own. So when I finish working with somebody, they'll come to me and say, you're a pretty good therapist, but I healed myself. Because on a daily basis, they're working with their parts and they're checking in with them and they're noticing, you know, whereas in the past you have that triggered experience and suddenly you're enraged. Now you, you kind of said, oh, there's that rageful part. And he's blended with me. He's totally taken over. And just that little bit of awareness creates enough separation that sometimes you can start to work with it and say things like, I get that you're really triggered by this, but just let me handle it. Just relax for a second. Let me speak for you. You don't have to take over in this big way. And people can do that actually pretty readily, especially after they've healed some of their exiles. Once you've healed some exiles, the protectors sort of naturally start to relax and return 
So they're original valuable states. All of them are valuable at their core. And that's one of the goals is to liberate all these parts from the extreme roles they were forced into so they can be who they're designed to be. Which is centered self? No. They all have specific talents and, and resources. They did? They do? They do, yeah. What, what, so what were the parts designed to be? It just varies. So. Oh, yeah, that's that whole part where it's like, what would you rather if you exactly. didn't have? That's right. Ah! Yeah. Okay, so let's, okay. So for people that are like scared of parts therapy, like what does the session look like? Yeah, so. Um, oh, wait, no. How do I tell the difference if I really am over something or like. Yeah, yeah I, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So, Is it the tenets of self? Like yeah. if I'm feeling clear and exactly, calm and exactly, compassionate? Exactly. And, and you, one of those is also courage and clarity and confidence. So self can be very forceful. It doesn't have to be passive observer of things. But when self is forceful, it, you don't have the same level of judgment about the person you're, you're stopping because you also have compassion while you're stopping them. Okay, that's really major. Like when you're in conflict, if you're having compassion for the person that you're in conflict with while you're stating your needs, then you're probably in self. That's right. And the person won't react in the same way. As they do when that that angry part takes over. You could really smack me in the face right now <laughs> with that is so much uh, wisdom. And Thank you. yeah, no, it really is major. So I have kind of a, a hard right to ask. So what about pharmaceuticals? Yeah. In healing? Yeah. Thoughts, comments, concerns? Yeah, so... I don't have anything against medication per se. And there are some situations that are so acute that it helps to chill the whole system out enough and then you can do some work. Because maybe that person can't smoke small microdosing amounts of marijuana because they have like lung stuff or something. Yeah, or whatever it is. So, And we are starting to try to figure out how to combine IFS with a lot of psychedelics because that's they can actually facilitate the work a lot. But um, back to your original question, like um, we've uh, we've come to work considerable amount with schizophrenics, for example, and when uh, paranoid part totally takes over and they're sort of in this delusional world, you can't do much IFS with them. You can't really. So the medication can separate them from that part enough that then you can start to work with it. The problem is that a lot of those medications are pretty toxic long term and. They also can flatten you out so you don't feel much of anything. And so they're sometimes useful in the short term. We just don't see them as a long-term solution. Because I notice a lot of times when a therapist has any feeling around them, like, or if, if, because I, I know for me, I can speak for my experience. Like when I took antidepressants, I kind of went into it thinking like, oh, this is going to be like my one size fits all. Like this is going to be the magic bullet. Like it wasn't rehab that did it and it wasn't this that fixed it. Like it's going to be these, it's going to be this pill and it's going to make me not want to smoke weed anymore and it's going to totally heal me and I'm not going to want to like have sex with strangers after this. Mm -hmm. And then when I started taking the pill and realized that it didn't do any of those things mm -hmm. um, and it generally kind of made me, I just felt dissociated all the time. Mm -hmm, that's right. And like, I just felt like I was like never really in a situation. Okay. I just, and, and, and experiencing that flatness was almost like in addition to my general mm -hmm. 
just experiencing the firefighters the way I was experiencing them and then having this new flatness. It just like every one of my parts got all pissed off and crazy. crazy. And then I just stopped taking them. And then that made me like psychotically depressed because I didn't like come off of them and I didn't do it with my psychiatrist. I just did it. Like my dad died and then I just, my stepdad died and then I just did it. And that was like not a cute recipe. So Mm -hmm. I just noticed that like, so many people get really fired up and really defensive around pharmaceuticals. And I think it's because for some people they have been so helpful and they are so absolutely necessary. And other people like me had really scary experiences. And I think I'm just looking for like, what is that moderate? Like, you know, sometimes you do. So it's not for everyone. Sometimes it is an important resource, but it's not the only way. Yeah. That's my position. And that it, shouldn't necessarily be the long-term way. Like with schizophrenia, for example, um, you take it and people would find that if they stopped taking it, the paranoia would come back. So maybe they need to take it all their lives. My experience is it comes back because when you took it, it exiled that part. And so it's looking for a chance to come back and do what it does. And so anytime you get off of it, it's going to come back. And until you heal the exiles that drive all of that, uh, then you're going to be in that vicious cycle all your life. Have you experienced working with schizophrenic people where like they were on medication and then were able to stop taking Mm -hmm. medication because you healed those exiled parts? Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Can you hear like the, uh, like professionals in the field being like, ah, fuck, like that's not cool. And I I get a lot of shit for that because, uh, a lot of psychiatrists spend a lot of time trying to convince people they have to be on medication all their lives. And so... And what you would say is like sometimes they do, sometimes, but sometimes... Some, if, you, if they do the healing, um, my experience, and you know, it's limited. I haven't worked with every schizophrenic, but um, sometimes they don't. Sometimes we haven't really described what healing and exile means, but once you help these parts unload what I call their burdens, the extreme beliefs and emotions they carry from these traumas. And they transform into their, often immediately transform into being this joyful little boy again. I don't know if you experienced that with your boy. And then you follow up and every day you meet with him and you make sure he's doing okay. Then all the protectors, including the paranoid part, can relax and they can start doing something else. So it's, I think what, you're hearing, and I, you know, I just hear myself saying this, this is a radically different position about the mind and the way it works and how it can change than our culture carries and then, than psychiatry carries. And um, it's, a, you know, it's daunting to try and hold this position in our field. Well, I really congratulate you for that. I think it's like, I think that, you know, there people's relationship to their own mental health, especially in the United States. And we can see that from the results of mass incarceration, mass shootings, um, our general dis-ease, like the general dis-ease of so many people in America. We see that whatever we're doing is not working for everyone. So I think that we need more tools and more resources and more different approaches to engaging in a conversation around mental health. So I really applaud you for that. I think it's incredible. I want you to keep on going. Um, I've talked through like three wrap it up signs because I'm I'm so into this conversation. (laughs) So I think um, just really quickly in like, you know, one minute or less is there. And actually, I think I don't even want to do that too. I think really we're going to have to save our yogi recess for the next time we have you back. We have to have you back. You're you're doing too much. Yeah, we have to come back and talk about more. I really think you got like halfway there. Fantastic. Ah, thank you so much.
Dr. Schwartz, Dick, thank you so much for coming. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Jonathan. It's really been an honor ah. and a treat. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Dr. Richard Schwartz. You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. Getting Curious is produced by me, Julie Carrillo, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Gossett. 